Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from past audiobooks and other spoken word projects. You writers may also be given the chance to have your newly written material, fiction or nonfiction, read to an audience. This show will get the words out. And now, here's the host of Tom Reads Your Story, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And as always, thank you, Mr. Announcer, for that lovely introduction. Welcome to you voice actors, writers of all kinds, and audiobook listeners. We are celebrating the spoken word, and this is Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. So, we uh, we got to have a little meeting. We got to have a little meeting. It's uh, It's time to talk a little bit about the format of the show. And I know this really isn't uh, something my audience needs to deal with. It's something that I'm dealing with, and I guess I'm sort of passing on that information to you. It's uh, it's basically been a show about me playing old tapes, and that is just not sustainable. Uh, I love the idea of, paying, of playing pieces of audiobooks and things that I've... Uh, I've seen or, or maybe little projects that I've done, but as far as the whole commercials things, you know, commercial auditions and commercials that I've done, it's just not something I can keep doing. So, uh, you can still send in your written stuff for me to look at, and I'll probably want to record it. However, that's, um, that's going to be the sideline. I, I am going to be actively seeking out stuff that I find online uh, that I can use and playing it, uh, on the show. That's the show. Anyway, that's the podcast. It's, it's me performing for you and for you, the, the listener or you, the potential client of mine, <laughs> which is, would be great. And, uh, that means of course, um, keeping my eyes open for interesting stuff like Facebook posts, uh, articles uh, that uh, I see people writing or writing about. Um, so that's basically it. Uh, uh, now there's uh, some commercials I'm going to be throwing in there that I've done uh, working uh, with the law firm that uh, I've had a job at for five years. Uh, and I'll be using those once in a while, but that's it. And they will be few and far between. So, I'm going to be looking for stuff like uh, like this this Carl Sagan recordings I've done. I want more of that. I want more of the Facebook stuff and um, more stuff from my vault of audiobooks. And that's basically it. And you know, if if you have something you would like to add, you certainly have my email address. Tom reads your story. Tom reads your story at Yahoo. Dot com. You can ask me questions, you can make comments, whatever you like. Uh, I'm glad you're here anyway. So, what do we have on the agenda today? Today, we have some poetry by 
Khalil Gibran, Arab, uh, Lebanese, more specifically, poet born in 1893 and who died in the 30s, early 30s. I will be reading, uh, first of all, some history uh, about him. I knew very little about him. And I'll be reading something from Wikipedia about him and then going right into a poem that he wrote that is called A Tear and a Smile. So there is that. Uh, And then I'll be reading from a, a great book by an author named William R. Solden. And he goes by Bill Solden on Facebook. But the book that I'm referring to is the latest thing I have uh, audiobook-wise uh, that will be coming out very soon. It's, it's very, very late in coming out. I actually finished the production in February. And then coronavirus came along and screwed up everything. And it's taken months, and it still isn't out yet. But uh, I'm going to be playing uh, one of the chapters uh, from the book, and uh, you can call it a sneak peek. And uh, so there's that. And maybe an ad or two. I'm no longer uh, going to announce ads or talk about ads if I play them at all. I might play them just as filler, you know, for something to be there. Um, but I'm not going to say that was an ad I did and blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not going to announce what it is or why. It's just consider it an advertisement that you would hear on the radio or on TV. It's just there. Uh, but I won't be um, talking about it. Anyway, so that those are the two major things that uh, – that I'll be playing today, uh, the Khalil Gibran uh, poem, and also uh, a passage from um, "In Just the Right Light," uh, the book of short stories by William R. Solden. Okay, great. New York City, it's the world capital of competition. It's the place the championship teams call home. The place where the winners live. Baseball, basketball, and tennis are not the only competitive sports for which New York is famous. In fact, the very biggest game in town is law. Yes, the Big Apple is where America's top legal teams slug it out for their clients. Here's where they stay at the very top of their game. When it comes to asbestos litigation, Fighting on behalf of mesothelioma and lung cancer victims and their families, you'll find the top team of legal warriors right here in the heart of the city. And that team is Weitz & Luxembourg, the law firm that's already won over $6 billion for asbestos victims and their families. Yes, $6 billion, more than the New York Yankees have made in over 30 years. Sure. You can find Bush League teams outside of the big city. Yes, there are some okay minor league ballplayers, hoopsters, and tennis pros out there. But when it comes to litigating your mesothelioma case, you're not just playing a game. 
You're fighting for your life. If you're an asbestos victim looking for the best damn legal team to fight for your life, New York City is where you'll find it. And Whites and Luxembourg is its name. Okay, so now we'll be playing uh, some history first of Khalil Gibran, the poet, born in, in Lebanon and educated in the United States. Uh, after that, uh, there will be a slight pause, and you'll hear the poem, A Tear and a Smile, Khalil Gibran. Khalil Gibran was a Lebanese-American writer, poet, and visual artist, also considered a philosopher, although he himself rejected the title. He is best known as the author of The Prophet, which was first published in the United States in 1923 and has since become one of the best-selling books of all time, having been translated into more than 100 languages. Born in a village of the Ottoman-ruled Mount Lebanon Mustafrate to a Maronite family, the young Gibran immigrated with his mother and siblings to the United States in 1895. As his mother worked as a seamstress, he was enrolled at a school in Boston, where his creative abilities were quickly noticed by a teacher who presented him to a photographer and publisher, F. Holland Day. Gibran was sent back to his native land by his family at the age of 15 to enroll at the Collège de la Sagesse in Beirut. Returning to Boston upon his youngest sister's death in 1902, he lost his older half-brother and his mother the following year, seemingly relying afterwards on his remaining sister's income from her work at a dressmaker's shop for some time. In 1904, Gibran's drawings were displayed for the first time at Day's Studio in Boston, and his first book in Arabic was published in 1905 in New York City. With the financial help of a newly met benefactress, Mary Haskell, Gibran studied art in Paris from 1908 to 1910. While there, he came in contact with Syrian political thinkers promoting rebellion in the Ottoman Empire after the Young Turk Revolution. Some of Gibran's writings, voicing the same ideas as well as anti-clericalism, would eventually be banned by the Ottoman authorities. In 1911, Gibran settled in New York, where his book in English, The Madman, would be published by Alfred A. Knopf in 1918 with writing of The Prophet or The Earth Gods also underway. His visual artwork was shown at Montrose Gallery in 1914 and the galleries of M. Nodler and Company in 1917. He had also been corresponding remarkably with May Zaida since 1912. In 1920, Gibran refounded the Penn League with fellow Majari poets. By the time of his death at the age of 48, from cirrhosis and incipient tuberculosis in one lung, he had achieved literary fame on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, and the prophet had already been translated into German and French. His body was transferred to his birth village of Bashari in present-day Lebanon 
to which he had bequeathed all future royalties on his books, and where a museum dedicated to his works now stands. A Tear and a Smile Poem by Khalil Gibran I would not exchange the sorrows of my heart for the joys of the multitude, and I would not have the tears that sadness makes to flow from my every part turn into laughter. I would that my life remain a tear and a smile, a tear to purify my heart and give me understanding of life's secrets and hidden things, a smile to draw me nigh to the sons of my kind and to be a symbol of my glorification of the gods, a tear to unite me with those of broken heart, a smile to be a sign of my joy in existence. I would rather that I died in yearning and longing than that I live weary and despairing. I want the hunger for love and beauty to be in the depths of my spirit, for I have seen those who are satisfied the most wretched of people. I have heard the sigh of those in yearning and longing, and it is sweeter than the sweetest melody. With evening's coming, the flower folds her petals and sleeps, embracing her longing. At morning's approach, she opens her lips to meet the sun's kiss. The life of a flower is longing and fulfillment, a tear and a smile. The waters of the sea become vapor and rise and come together, and area cloud and the cloud floats above the hills and valleys until it meets the gentle breeze, then falls weeping to the fields, and joins with brooks and rivers to return to the sea, its home. The life of clouds is a parting and a meeting, a tear and a smile. And so does the spirit become separated from the greater spirit to move in the world of matter, and pass as a cloud over the mountain of sorrow and the plains of joy to meet the breeze of death and return whence it came to the ocean of love and beauty to God. Khalil Gibran Khalil Gibran. Okay. This week's, well, not this week, but this episode's book uh, is called In Just the Right Light. And it's by William R. Solden. Now, if he's listening, and uh, I said his name wrong, uh, it's going to be on the upcoming audiobook. <laughs> So I I did look up, in all fairness to me, uh, I did look up his name, uh, the name Solden, S-O-L-D-A-N, uh, on YouTube, and two or three times I did get that pronunciation, Solden. If it is different, I humbly apologize, and I guess if you have any problem with it, Bill, <laughs> you, you may want to speak to your publisher and they'll speak to me about it. But anyway, this is a great book about life 
after horrible economic times. As many uh, cities across America uh, have never survived the uh, the Great Recession of 2008, of those that have lost major employers to foreign countries, it's about those people uh, and what they do now, especially in the smaller towns that don't have large uh places to work, but mostly just have the the local businesses. And that's what this is. It's a collection of stories, many with characters that show up in the stories later on, which blew me away. I had never heard of anything like that with a, a short story collection. It's very unique and beautifully written. And you're going to really like this. William R. Solden in just the right light. Something special. When I get to Dwight's, he's in his driveway cutting an old Crown Victoria in half with a propane torch. For as long as I can remember, he's been going on about building himself a stretch limo by splitting a car in two and welding an extension in the middle. It looks like he's finally had enough of everyone down at Miller's Tap giving him shit about it. There's a stereo tuned to a classic rock station and a speaker propped up in the living room window. A corrugated plastic awning slants from the side of the house, and under it sits Dwight's old man, lefty, steeped in shade, wearing nothing but a pair of dirty cut-off shorts and sucking down an old Milwaukee. His feet soak in a kiddie pool, and several cans float around his ankles in the scummy water. Hey! Hey, Jesse, what's the word, he says, saluting me with his beer before draining the last of it and tossing the can in the pool with the others. He reaches into a styrofoam cooler for another one, places it between his bare knees, and pauses to scratch the stump of his left arm. A crane accident at the mill years ago took it off just before the elbow, hence the nickname. What's up, Lefty? There's a crack and a hiss as he pulls the tab of his beer, and foam runs over the top onto his legs, which are fish-belly pale. Stiff dicks and airplanes, he says. But this damn thing's itching something fierce today. All these years and I still feel the sucker moving around. Thought they was just fooling with all that phantom limb stuff, but sure as shit. He takes a few long swallows, and spits a quick spurt onto his stump. It's nothing a couple six or twelve more of these won't fix. He gulps from the can again, crushes it, and lets out a sudsy belch. Dwight's focused on the flame of his torch. After finishing a cut across the roof, he removes the circular welding goggles he's wearing and rests them on his head. That's when he notices me. He shakes a pall-mell from a pack he pulls from the back pocket of his dickies, lights it with the welder, and chokes off the valve. Gonna be a beaut when she's all done, he says, nodding toward the car. Uh-huh, I say. Guy I know over in Hillsville traded him a pistol for it. Rather than chit-chat, I get to the point. Charlene's been on me about that hundred dollars, I say a couple months back that broke through the wall of mine and 
Charlene's dreary situation, when I'd won the bid on a small remodeling job. Few weeks of steady labor. If we were lucky, it might get us above water long enough to brace ourselves for the next wave. But during a drunken lapse of judgment, I floated Dwight a hundred bucks, after he gave me some song and dance about owing a bookie in the city and being a little light. The next morning, I found him passed out behind the wheel of his truck in the side parking lot of Mort's little shopper, a litter of scratch-off lottery tickets covering his lap and strewn about the cab. I felt like a chump, but I never told him I knew what he'd done with the money. When I finally told Charlene about it, she locked me out of the trailer for several days. It was February. At night, I curled up in the back seat of my olds, using a paint-spattered drop cloth I kept in the trunk as a blanket. I'd stare out the window and try to count the stars that were flung across the sky like broken glass. And sooner or later, I'd fall asleep to the sound of my own chattering teeth. That right? Dwight says. She run out of other stuff to harp on you about, huh? That's got nothing to do with it. Times are tough is all. You know that as good as anyone. Oh, I'm just busting your balls, brother. No need to get your panties all knotted up. So I guess you'll be squaring up then, I say. He's silent for a moment, looks around at everything but my face. Finally, he says, Well, I can't say I'm in the position to do that just now, but don't sweat it. Don't sweat it? Damn it, Dwight, you know I ain't working right now. You know I didn't have it to loan you in the first place. But I did because we go way back, and I was drunk, and I close my eyes and shake my head. I got something in the works, he says. And here it comes, I think. The story. The scheme. I've known Dwight long enough to see it coming from a mile off. To hell with something, I say. I need my money. We're scraping bottom. Government check's still two weeks away, and Charlene ain't bringing in nearly enough doing makeovers and selling that Avon crap. I stop talking for a moment and look over at Lefty, who's dozing in his chair under the awning, idly swatting at an enormous fly that keeps landing on his nose. Then I take a deep breath, tell myself it's either Dwight's big plan or never see that hundred dollars. And that's just not an option. It's a simple in-and-out type deal, he says. Easy peasy. I stare at him, motion for him to get on with it. There's a storage facility heading over toward Middleton. You know the one? he asks. I nod. That guy I was working for, one just started up his own construction company. Fucker burned me on two weeks' pay. Tried to say the work was never finished. Anyway, I happen to know he's got a storage unit full of tools and equipment. I also happen to know there ain't shit for security. Had a unit there myself for a while. Damn place is wide open. After thinking on it for a minute, I say, even if the gates open, the unit won't be. Let's say I was on board. How you plan on getting in? Last I remember, them places used disc locks on the doors. 
Bolt cutters won't work. They're too thick, and there's no leverage. That's why they use them. He picks up the welding torch, opens the gas valve, and ignites it with a flint striker. Fire, he says. It'll chop through one of those locks in no time. And I suppose you got somewhere to get rid of the stuff? I know a fellow that'll take it off our hands, he says. Split two ways could be a nice chunk of cheese. I consider it some more. Finally, I ask, when? Figure we can go around twelve tonight, he says. She'll be quick. As I continue thinking, he adjusts the torch, narrows the whipping flame into a tight blue point. Lefty's emerged from his nap and is cursing the relentless fly, still buzzing around his head. After draining the last of his second beer since I arrived, he stands, scratches his stump again, and staggers to a bush beside the house to take a leak. There ain't nothing to lose, Dwight says, pulling the goggles back over his eyes. The torch's flame burns like a wicked ember in each black lens. Without waiting for me to say yes or no, he returns his attention to the crown vic and begins working his way down the aisle. There's always something to lose, so I say. Speak for yourself. But just then a Black Sabbath song comes on the radio, and he doesn't seem to hear me. When I walk into the trailer, Charlene's on the couch in a pair of my boxer shorts and a tattered tube top that's beginning to unravel along the bottom. She's got the TV on and one of her misty menthols crammed between her lips, squinting against the smoke as she flips through the only three stations that come in. Brendan's recently figured out how to remove the plastic safety covers on the wall sockets and is heading toward the one under the kitchen table when I catch him and stick him in his playpen. Babe, you really need to watch him better, I tell her. He almost got at the outlet again. That bomb pay you back our money? She asks, her eyes glued to the screen. She settles on Maury, where a ratty-looking asshole is jumping up and down on stage because the DNA says he's not the father of some girl's kid. Not exactly. She finally pries her eyes from the TV and looks at me. What the hell's that supposed to mean? She says. Got word on a job. Dwight says it should pull in enough to get back what I loaned him and then some. She scoffs and jabs her skinny cigarette out in the ashtray. Course he told you that. That son of a bitch has got more stories than a goddamn library. I know he does, baby. But what am I supposed to do? If he don't got it, he don't got it. Don't baby me, she says. What if he's blowing smoke up your ass? Then what? I suppose you'll just let him go on owing you? Meanwhile, we ain't got a pot to piss in. I can see the muscles in her jaw working as she grinds her teeth. I don't know what to say to her. She's right. If Dwight's little scheme doesn't pan out, if it all ends up being for nothing, finally I say, we can't afford for me not to take that chance. Damn right we can't, she says, her voice full of venom. In Just the Right Light 
And of course, all of those stories take place in Miles Junction in Ohio. Bill, by the way, is from Youngstown. Well, that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed hearing from the books I read today, make sure to visit audible.com for more books and short stories that I, as well as many other voice actors, have narrated. Be sure to email me at tomreadsyourstory at yahoo.com to send in your written material for me to perform, or if you have specific questions about getting into the voiceover biz. As always, thanks to anchor.fm for this wonderful chance at having a continuing podcast. I very much appreciate it. Hope you decide to come back soon. Have a great rest of your day and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.